0: Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. And this podcast will keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now, here are your hosts, Drew and Jay. Thanks, Ray. Welcome to Season 8, Episode 4 of the Ray Wenderlich Podcast. This episode was recorded on the 25th of July, 2018. I'm your host, Jay Strawn, with our slightly scattered co-host, Drew Freeman. Thanks, Jay. In today's episode, we're not going to go quite
1: platform agnostic, but we will be talking about two technologies that lend themselves really well to Android or iOS. First up, we have Marin Todorov, the author of his seventh book. That's right, seventh book for Ray Wenderlich, Realm, Building Modern Swift Apps with Realm Database, who today will be talking about Realm, Building Modern Apps with Realm Database.
2: Hey, 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 everybody.
0: So then in the second half, we're going to put the focus on Drew, who's gotten away with not talking about technologies himself this season. Drew will be talking to us about accessibility, what it is and why we use it.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to finally having the spotlight put back on me. But, Maureen, welcome. It is good to have you on the show.
2: Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, I'm really excited to talk about realm and accessibility. And and I'm excited to have you here because
1: uh, being on the Ray Wenderleck team, first of all, for me, it always gives me this great
0: mm-hmm.
1: box of imposter syndrome because so many people who work on the team are just so amazing and intelligent. And I fanboy so many people. And you're one of the people I'm like, oh, Marine is saying something. I'm going to fanboy him now. So And uh, and now I put Marine on the spot. He's like, don't say stuff like that. <laughs> Yeah, I'm just, just just silently shaking my head. <laughs> <laughs>
2: and everybody else is like, why? Why Ham? It's great.
1: You've done seven books. Now, what are some of the other books that you've written?
2: Yeah, uh, I I worked on the very first book that we published together with Ray, Cesare, Matthias, and others from the team that was iOS 5 by Tutorials, basically covering the newly introduced APIs in iOS 5. And then just uh, it turned on into an ongoing gig and every year uh, contributed to a book or, or worked on one solo.
1: And for those keeping count, remember, we're going to be seeing iOS 12 this year. So that's seven years of those seven books. And that, that's just amazing. I, I would love to, but I, I know I'm not a writer. I, I People look at my stuff and, and I specifically have my spouse to convert things from Drew to English.
2: Oh, but we do have... Editors, if you didn't know that, they're really, really good. They are um, actually turn anything into a book. And I know there are often
1: calls for, for uh, authors and, and other people for Ray like It Really, it just grows so much every day. And now that we've thrown in all the Android tech, that's, that's some really great stuff.
2: Oh, yeah. And honestly, um, th- that's one of the grand ideas behind the team, um, the tutorial team, basically, is that Um, A lot of people would know, you know, great stuff, but not necessarily being able to lay them down into a enjoyable prose. Uh, And uh, so one of the things that Ray does is to find all kind of authors that want to contribute time uh, and, you know, plug them into this whole machine that is prepared to help them in any way possible to... Uh turn a book out. Uh, yeah, we do everything. We've
1: got the you know we've got the books, we've got the videos, we've got the tutorials, we've got a podcast, so there's different ways that people can learn things. And today, not to get too far off the topic and pat Ray on the back far too long, <laughs> we're gonna talk about Realm. Now my understanding is Realm is effectively another database system. Can you give me some high points
2: on how Realm is unique in the I'm a database world? To be super precise, Realm, the company has two products. And one is the free and open source database product. And the other one is the server synchronization product that makes all the cloud functionalities possible. Yeah, I I looked at the website and that was,
1: uh, well, not entirely clear.
2: Right, yeah, yeah. You know, marketing, um, (laughs) you you have to make your own research, basically. The free and open source database from Realm, I think it's a great product. Uh, It basically consists of a C++ engine, a database engine that the Realm team wrote from the grounds up uh, to kind of like match what present-day applications need from a present-day database. And they also worked on a bunch of different um, SDKs that thinly wrap around this C++ database engine and give you you Kotlin SDK on Android Um, A Swift SDK on iOS, you can use uh, Objective-C on macOS, or maybe Node.js. I think I saw Java as as well. There is a Java SDK as well, and there is a Node.js SDK if you want to do some real magic from the command line on Linux as well.
0: So if, if we're talking about the iOS side of things, how would you compare using Realm over using core data?
2: Right. So I think the end effect is quite similar uh, into what they offer as an, as an SDK. Um, they both offer uh, this modern perception of the object graph, right? Like um, the developers want to persist objects onto disk and then get back those objects Along with their relationships to you know other objects. So if you if you have if you want to so if you're storing an array of of uh, people let's say people objects you don't wanna you don't wanna get a list of their IDs and then look up those IDs and so forth. Mm-hmm. With both core data and Realm, you effectively get back um, whenever you're reading the data from disk um, an array of these objects already ready to use. So this is the big you know, advantage over traditional databases. Uh, and the difference is that core data is is an orM or um, is a is a wrapper around an SQLite storage so it it does all this conversion from the traditional database paradigm to an object graph on the fly as you're writing and reading data so all of this happens in the background while you're uh, working with your object and realm is is uh, it's a little more you know, down to the metal, let's so to say, uh, because its engine is written specifically for that purpose. So there's not so much um, wrapping and translating from SQL to something else and so forth uh, happening as you work with it. Mm. So, in that sense, it's a little more lean. Yeah. So, I'm curious is that
1: then the double edged sword? On the one hand, I, I'm seeing that you get a lot of tighter binding to the storage because you don't have that SQL hop-through level. But then on the flip side, it's not SQL. There's no SQL attached to it. So any SQL knowledge you have, does that go out
2: the the window for this? Right, exactly. And so, And so SQL databases are great when you have a huge database maybe on your server and you want to query this database, right? Like you want to come up with some crazy queries and get back the result sets. Uh, when the server processes them, um, and, and Realm is an embedded database on your device, so it's not it's not um, designed to do this big querying, big searches, and so forth. It's it's more designed towards you know you have some objects stored and you want to load them and maybe um, you know transpire over some kind of relationships, fetch their related objects, and so forth. So um, more of what you usually do in your code, in memory. Now, we, we talked about the fact that Realm, the company, has the two
1: products. They have the database, open source, free, anybody can use it, and it's embedded on the system. They also have the cloud services, which is a pay service. I think it was initially 30 American dollars per month for limited access. Does Realm scale? Because we're talking about the fact but we don't want to have a large amount of data, but... If they're offering a cloud service and I need to scale to a much larger object model, is Realm something I probably should think twice about or does Realm scale if my business needs it?
2: I think that a single, the last numbers I was reading on the website was that a single instance um, on your server can handle about 10,000 concurrent connections. That not not meaning ten thousand users. That meaning ten thousand user concurrently connected and working with your server. Uh, And as uh, speaking horizontally, I think it can scale as, as as pretty much as much as you want. Now, speaking about Realm on the server, it hasn't been designed to really replace Oracle or Microsoft SQL Server and so forth, because as we just said. Those servers are really designed for these queries that uh, you know uh, uh, walk over these giant data sets mm-hmm. so these are really um, designed to do searches um, and realm is really more designed about um, you know basically preserving relationships uh, being able to quickly you know hop between objects and and so forth so uh, it's not designed to replace Oracle it's more designed to um, you know, help you connect your mobile devices to your server uh, and then onwards you could you know, feed some limited data sets from your Oracle into Realm and then push them down to your mobile devices or so. Okay. Mm-hmm. So there is the syncing service is, is what is special uh, but it's not designed to really replace your corporate uh, database that you have groomed over the years and so
0: okay. forth. Yes. So what if there was a startup that was interested in using Realm what would you tell them to look for? What features in their app would you want them to have to recommend Realm to them as the most useful product for them? I think that
2: one of the great selling points of Realm is that it's multi platform. And so um, it works exactly the same way on Android and the iPhone. And in, because it's actually the same C database engine that comes with the library when you install it on both Android and and iPhone. Mm -hmm. Uh, And of course there is some, you know, like if they have this and if they have that, but it's actually still the same code base. Uh, So it is actually so equivalent, what you get on Android and iPhone is that, that the database file is binary equivalent uh, between two platforms. You can just grab the file from your iPhone, um, send it over to your Android phone, and if you have the same app it will just uh you know load the data from it and so i think this is a um this is just fantastic if you especially if you're a startup and you're you know you have to develop both the android and iphone um app um working with the same database in both uh is just amazing you will have one data model you will have basically one logic to argue um how to fetch objects, when to fetch them, which objects to fetch. And so. wow, that's great. Yeah, and I mean, um, if you're a startup, you can always you know decide to go for React Native, uh, give it a try, and uh, there's also Realm for uh, React Native. So uh, that's also an option. That's
0: pretty useful.
1: So let's talk about this from a developer point of view. You said it's very similar to core data. I, I looked at some of the commands. So effectively, are you instantiating a Realm uh, singleton and then hanging things off that. How do you basically start implementing Realm on the simplest level in a in an app?
2: Right. So there's a there's a Realm API. It's a class uh, which you can use to. Um, there's a handy shortcut actually that gives you access to the default Realm in your documents folder, so you don't have to do any configuration in there. You can just say new Realm, and that's it. And that will uh, create a, a, an empty database in your documents folder, and you can start just um, filling in data. And what you do is uh, define your the objects that you want to store in the database. You just need to define those classes in your code and inherit from Realm's root object. And then Realm will uh, just introspect your code base at startup, uh, at basically at runtime, will introspect your code, find what kind of objects have you defined, and then create the underlying uh, structure uh, on the file system to accommodate for those objects that you want to store. And all this happens automatically. Um, and then anytime you need uh, to write objects, you will just uh, create a new instance of Realm and, and create some new instances of the classes you've defined. And just uh, once they're initialized with the data you want, uh, just call a the add method on the Realm class to add those objects to the Realm, and this will persist them on the disk. So with core data, I know that there are certain classes
1: that are just easy writes, obviously strings, numbers. What happens when you're getting into more complicated classes, say a color or a binary blob? How how does Realm handle that, or what are the, the classes that Realm can easily what are the classes that Realm easily understands, and what do you do with
2: the classes that are more complicated? That is a great question, and I sense that you've worked with databases before on iOS. Just a teeny bit. <laughs> yeah, right. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, so the picture is similar. Uh, primitives like doubles uh, or strings are automatically stored, and there is support for uh, multi-platform objects like uh, date or binary data. Uh, And so you can just create properties of those types and they will be automatically stored. If you want to persist a UI color, now this poses a problem because, uh, you know, you can be syncing to your server and then syncing to a Mac app or syncing to an Android app. Mm -hmm. So Realm wouldn't know how to translate this between those platforms. The solution there is to have a property, a dynamic property in your Swift class, which is of type UI color. And have a custom setter for it, which when you set the color property will uh, set, let's say, the hex string to another hidden string property. And you can have a custom getter as well that will give you a UI color using the hex string persisted in the other property. So basically, we'll have a proxy property for any custom types. And you can use those uh, pretty pretty much uh, transparently from your code. Okay,
1: so so we've got the strings, we've got the numbers, dates. But beyond that, you're pretty much wanting to stick with storing the data. Uh, what about the, the binary
2: blobs? Yeah, so data is supported also um, out of the box. If you have a data property, it will just be stored as a binary on this. With
1: core data, this has always been a nightmare. So obviously, at any time... You need to change your tables. You need to change the makeup of your class. You're, you're doing a new version. How do you deal with... See, I, I go back to the old days of, of editing tables and, and the like. And basically, I, I open up new, new slots in my table, and then I run a, a program to say, now go do all of this stuff. Take me through that in realm if I need to do a modification to a class.
2: Do you really think this is the biggest problem with core data?
1: No, but it's a problem. I, <laughs> I, core data and I have a have a not love not love relationship sometimes. So,
2: <laughs> but but nonetheless, when I'm when I'm dealing with versioning. Fair enough. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Versioning is is always a problem uh, in the sense that is not something that there can be the ultimate answer to because you will always hit some kind of a custom situation that you need to handle uh, on your own. Mm -hmm. And so Realm handles um, migrations um, automatically and it allows you to do custom migrations yourself. And so anything that is uh, dubbed a, a simple change to the data structure it's migrated automatically. And in the book, there's a list of all the operations that are dubbed as a simple data change. And those are um, adding new properties to an object, adding new objects, um, deleting objects, deleting properties. Um, basically, anything that has to do with adding or deleting is, is handled automatically for you. And so the, the structure of the database is, is adjusted to whatever you're expecting or you're actually willing to have. Now, simply adding empty objects or simply deleting existing objects might not be what you want, right? But you you might want to do something with the existing data or to, you know, generate some new data for those you know new objects and so forth. But this is something that Realm does not have a way to know, you know, and do automatically. And so, once there is a change in the structure, uh, Realm will perform it. And then we'll allow you to uh, basically provide a closure with a code. Uh, and your code will have access to the old database file and the new database file at the same time. Mm. So you could do some you know, uh, reading from the old database and you know, some juggling of numbers, you know, data crunching, whatever you want to do, uh, creating some new data if needed, and so forth. You have that opportunity as well. I'm not saying it's super straightforward, I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm not saying it's, you know, walking apart, because I've done the data migration for, you know, serious apps, and it's something that is just is challenging, but uh, you ha- you do have the infrastructure to do it, uh, um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's up to you to perform any custom stuff.
0: Thank you so much for talking to us, Maureen. Uh, we're going to move on to the next section about accessibility with my co host Drew. But I wanted to thank you so much for sharing your time and your expertise about Realm.
2: Thank you one more time for having me over. Uh- I'm, this is my fourth time on the Ray One League podcast. Nice. Uh, I just looked it up. (laughs) Oh, you're an opiate. You've been on this show more than we
1: have sometimes.
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And, and yeah, and I'm super excited to hear more about accessibility because I have some things in mind that maybe I will have the chance to ask about life. Awesome.
0: Excellent. And we'll have that after the break. Welcome back to the second half of our show. I'm here with co-host Drew, and we're going to be talking about accessibility. Mm -hmm. We've touched on it a little bit, uh, especially in our episode about WWDC. But I want to ask you, Drew, why is it important to you to talk about accessibility?
1: That's a question that I really wish didn't have to be asked. Mm -hmm. What's important about accessibility? The question is, why aren't people naturally using it? For me, the importance is that accessibility is helping people to use your applications who otherwise don't use your applications because of limitations that they have. Mm -hmm. I will admit, I have a personal bias in this. My spouse is hearing impaired. She was born with a hearing deficiency. The inner cochlea of her ear, which is the high-end frequencies, are pretty much gone. And for people who don't know that, What that means sounds like T's and S's, that hisses or clicks, noises go away, and from A listening point of view, that's what separates language so that you can take apart the words. Now, my wife is very intelligent. She actually taught herself to lip-read to the point that her parents didn't know she was deaf until she was five, and her teacher pointed it out to them. Uh, They snuck up behind her and said, Heather, do you want to go to the zoo? And they just thought that she was very intent in her reading. And they realized, oh my goodness, she's deaf. Now, what does this mean? It means that if you have uh, an app that is heavy in videos a deaf person has problems. If you have an app that creates an audio notification, you have problems, but that's just one, regardless of whatever region you're developing your app for. And we talk about the two little hidden ones that nobody ever uses are globalization and accessibility. But the thing with globalization is you need to translate. Mm -hmm. With accessibility, you're losing people in every region.
0: And I mean, it's about design too. There have been studies that show That when people redesign things to be more friendly for people who have a disability, abled users end up liking it better because it ends up being easier to use in the first place.
1: Absolutely. And there's always that misconception for people who are able to think that people who have a disability can't process as well. And missing Stephen Hawking, who just passed, this was not a man who did not have a functional brain. This is by far one of the most amazing brains in the world. And thanks to accessible technology, he was still able to lecture and communicate and write books. It's one of the things that Apple has had in the bottom of their technology stack pre-OS This is stuff that has been there all along and that people don't realize how much is available for free if you actually just put in the minimal amount of effort. (laughs) And I went back and I looked through a lot of it and it's amazing. If you go back and look at the WWDC videos from 2015, the oldest videos they have on the site every year, what's new in accessibility, what's new in accessibility. And no, it's not the Hall H of San Diego Comic-Con style talk. It does not fill the room. And again... The, the question, why accessibility? The true answer is, it's just right. It's something you should be doing anyway. Yeah. Most of it, and if you get it for free, you've already taken a huge step. But what I want to do is I want to cover like the four fundamentals of accessibility. Because I've already talked about deafness uh, or hearing. Mm-hmm. But There are three others, and again, Apple has done some amazing things, and Android has as well. And besides hearing, there's vision. Because you think about people who are deaf, you've got to Think about people who are blind. Mm -hmm. On top of that are the other two, and you tend not to think about it this way, and that is motor or motion and cognitive. By motion and motor, what we're talking about are people who cannot necessarily touch their device like other people can. I was very blessed in my career to work as a developer on a team where our lead was quadriplegic and he used a mouth stick as a software engineer. And while he didn't type as fast, I mean, his mind is amazingly sharp and he could see very complex things. It took longer for him to type, but he knew what he was doing and it was unbelievable to watch that process. With cognitive, we talk about the people, the leaps that the autistic community has made and how the iPad has appealed to people in that community. If you haven't used this on the iPad, there's a a system called, I think it's called Guided Access, where you can basically frame off a part of the app and frame off parts of the controls of the app. Somebody can use that app and focus on what is essential to the app. And that's not the teaching stuff or any of the other stuff. It just basically lets people focus on what's going on.
0: How difficult would it be to take advantage of these? Or how would you go about taking advantage of these features that are already built into iOS?
1: Like I said, a lot of it, you, you get for free. If you go into Xcode and you look at the interface builder sections, there's an accessibility tab. If you start naming things, matter of fact, once you turn accessibility on, and I'm going to fall back on, on the vision stuff for a while. Once you, you turn on the, the, the speech help, it's going to tell you, all of the things that are on the screen, it will say there's a button on the screen, there's a button with this label on the screen. So you can walk through all of the controls, Mm -hmm. but to tell you how you can leverage it, I wanna roll back a little, and I wanna talk about some of the stuff that is in the OS already that you're getting for free before even leveraging it. Because there are certain things that as a developer, you may actually be programming against without realizing it. All right. With the, with the vision, you're dealing with so many different things. You're dealing with low vision. You're dealing with color blindness. You're dealing with size. Mm-hmm. So Apple has put in things like color control. They've uh, I, With the, the upcoming Mac OS 14 with Sahara, they've got the dark mode, which a lot of people just like for its coolness and sleekness. But for people who can't stand a bright screen, that has already helped. So programming toward the dark mode, programming toward the smart color mode on iOS. Motion settings also exist. If you take a look at some of the motion and some of the motion blur that exists, the way that you open an app and you get that zoom, mm-hmm. the user can turn off certain motion settings and instead of getting the zoom of the app, what you get is just a simple crossfade. Yeah. Or in Safari on, on the iPhone, uh, instead of getting the tabs that roll, the tabs crossfade in and blink.
0: Yeah. I I actually have that enabled because it saves battery to not use as many animals. There's
2: similar settings on macOS uh, to reduce the motion mm-hmm. and to reduce the, to increase the contrast of the UI, and um, and so all of this is really very useful not only for you know impaired people but also I always have the high contrast on. Mm-hmm. It just helps me navigate easier. It's not as fancy, but it it it's really ha- it increases the utility of the UI, and what I just felt that it might be useful to mention is that the built-in controls are usually you know, fully automatically enabled for all of these, uh, all of these uh, accessibility modes. The, the, big, the big issue is whenever an app uses a custom control, this is the, you know, the specific use case where developers has to pay a lot of attention. Mm.
1: Sometimes it can be if you have two separate things, like a separate label from a separate value. So what it'll say is, I have a label that says this, and I have a value. And if your controls aren't necessarily in an order that makes sense, you basically have to hit multiple labels, multiple value, multiple label, multiple value. And you can actually have accessibility containers that will say, okay, treat these two controls as one control. Because anybody who's stepping through these controls may not necessarily have the ability for precise hitting. Mm -hmm. So you can say, okay, so this label and this button or this label and this value are now just sort of one accessible area. And you can then override and say, okay, use both the label name and the value name in the spoken accessible description. Mm -hmm. And this is where you also begin to add in. So your custom controls, putting containers around your controls. We go also even deeper with MFI, the ever popular and secret made for iOS program, which if you've never done hardware, you've probably never even come in contact with MFI. If you have done hardware, yes, I know the first rule of MFI is you do not speak of MFI. It's it's a very very s- scary program because you're dealing with chips that authenticate and are allowed to be plugged in, but you're dealing with things like Bluetooth hearing aids Mm. or Braille readers or external motion input. We think about that from the point of view of, and we talked about this in the WWDC, everybody jokes about, well, they've added the tongue to emojis, but they've also added a finer ability to note eye movement. And sometimes in quadriplegia, where you've lost everything from the neck down, your eye motion is the biggest thing that you can move around. Mm -hmm. And we talked about the fact that this becomes an amazing tool. Uh, We also have the fact that there's the ability to speak what's on the screen. Uh, Sometimes... If I'm driving and something comes in, the fact that I can have it read to me that message rather than having to pull over because we don't text and drive. Let's, let's flip back to, to hearing captions. Remember, we're in a podcast right now. That's eliminated anybody who can't hear. When you have videos, captioning those videos is essential. Everybody has, well, not everybody, but people will put a first use video into some apps And these things are only two to three minutes and the effort to put captioning into that is ridiculously small Mm -hmm. and there are so many tools for that we talk about assistive touches um the haptics one of the things that i love about the iphone is that you can actually set up haptic pulses as alert sounds for somebody texting you
0: like you can assign a specific vibration pattern for a specific person
1: and i am one of those people who wear my iphone in my back pocket and if I cannot hear, which, you know, I am the white-bearded one, my hearing is getting worse with time, I may not be able to hear a couple of chimes to tell me that it's Jay calling or Marine calling, but if I have a person who calls me on a regular basis and I have a pattern that I can feel, that is going to help me a lot. And it's one of the reasons that when the Apple Watch came out, I bought it and I immediately got one from my wife for the fact that it had the haptics, that she could get a text message, feel it, and then look and read it. Mm. And using haptics, that's not even accessibility technology. That is standard APIs. You find the haptic technology and use that. You can use that on press feedbacks just to give them the feeling that they've done a touch. Mm -hmm. Now, you asked me, well, how do I implement? The question that I find is really important is not necessarily how do you implement, but how do you know that they're using it? And there is a score. I think it's an NS workspace, but to make it even easier on UI, it's in UI accessibility. There are an unbelievable list of simple U.S. accessibility notifications for changes or capabilities to tell you whether or not they're using it. And that's things like assistive touch. Are they? Do they have their closed captioning turned on? Do they have grayscale enabled? Have they inverted colors? You can just simply query accessibility when you're going to do something and say, well, do I need to be aware of this stuff? And that way, if it's toggled on or off, you can change your behavior. Now, of course, this is a ton of stuff. And from a developer's point of view, you go, yes, I love it. And from a PM's point of view, they're like, why? But it's always... You know, as a developer, I will say I always feel that one of your responsibilities is to know your technologies and push them up to your PM Mm -hmm. to say, this is a technology we need to embrace. And, you know, as a developer, it's always good to understand a little bit about business case to give a business reason for why. And, of course, the business reason of accessibility beyond it's just the right thing to do is it increases our user
0: base. Absolutely. And there are some easy, small things that you can do with your design. Instead of using icons, you could use labels so that the reader can read out exactly what you're tapping. Or if you have an image-heavy app, you can include um, areas for users to caption what their image is about in case someone can't see it like uh, Twitter has that function.
1: Now, one of the things to be careful of, I talked about programming against accessibility, Mm. and that is when you really start pushing in your own fonts Mm. and really doing very specific font size control. Because one of the settings that exists, at least on iOS, is the ability for the user to say, I need a larger font. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the Apple fonts, and I I got to watch this session last year, what they've done with kerning and what they have done with the the fading of these fonts is to make them as clear and as contrast-friendly as possible for people who don't have accessibility turned on. And when you say, I want this... be 20 point you have immediately pushed back against that system and if they turn on larger text it will be readily obvious where you are fighting against the system Mm. we talk about now using that whole concept of safe area when we put our layout together because the os is trying to offer things that you are basically pushing back against this leads to the last question as an engineer what is the best step to take to start this process And it happens in globalization and it happens in accessibility. And that is merely turn it on. Yeah. See what happens to your app when you turn it on and ask yourself, if I put a blindfold on and used my app, would I be able to use this in the state it is right now? You'll be surprised how much you've picked up for free. And at the same time, you'll be surprised how much you've programmed against it. It's one thing to be given a boat and given a pair of oars. And if you use those oars and hit the water really, really hard, you're not going to move.
0: Yeah. So just to clarify, with the custom fonts, when people ask for larger fonts, does that only apply to system font? Or can you include other fonts that are included in Xcode? Well, I, I don't think
1: necessarily it's the other fonts, though certain fonts may be limited in either the way they look when scaled, but it is when you set the font size, you will see that there are different ways to set font size and font weight. Mm -hmm. And I may have failed to mention that it's not just the font size they can set. They can also set low contrast bold. So the fonts will always be bolder or heavier weighted for clarity of reading. Mm -hmm. So when you look in, uh, in Interface Builder and how you're setting up your fonts, look carefully when it talks about things like large or smaller or the like, because that's actually corresponding to the system
2: graduated sizes that will match up with those settings. And for the folks that have never looked into this, um, the easiest way to implement this is the API actually gives you the font sizes for, you know, the standard stylings that you have in a in a word processor, like there's a heading one, heading two, heading three, heading four, and then a body text, the control text, and so forth. So all of these are predefined. And if you get the font sizes from these predefined APIs, they will automatically adjust whenever the user actually adjusts the settings on their phone. So it's that easy. There's a list of of APIs you can use. Use those, and that's all you need to do. Over on the Mac world, there's also an accessibility
1: application. It's basically an accessibility uh, inspector, so you can look at how that's being done on the Mac side. Obviously, I I, I sold my Mac soul to, to work on iOS a few years ago and haven't been back there in a long time. But it is very surprising how many people forget about it. I, I saw a technology demonstration for a long time ago for a very large table, for kiosks that had touch on it. Okay. Uh, it was uh, It was an early prototype of the pre-Microsoft Surface. If you remember when Microsoft was going to introduce a large kiosk table.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I do. And it was
1: an amazing piece of technology. I absolutely thought it was fantastic because uh, I asked them at the time, well, how many points of touch do you have? And they said, well, we're starting at 42. And I said, why that? And they said, well, we want to have room for four people to have 10 fingers down so we can all play hold them. <laughs> and I thought that was great. And I said, so I want to ask you about the accessibility layer. And I saw one, of their pms just have this look on their face like accessibility layer oh no this was years ago and it was an early prototype but nonetheless it's if you haven't even thought about accessibility. What you're basically saying is, I'm not thinking of part of my audience. Am I potential users? And if you're writing an app that's something where you're buying things or selling things, or worse, you have a game where you're nickel and diming them for extra diamonds every week. People who can't hear or can't see have just as much money as people who can see and hear. So you're you're losing potential money.
0: Mm-hmm. So we've uh, so we've talked about Four different ways that accessibility helps people. And I think it's very interesting that all of us have enabled different accessibility functions on our phones, even though all of us are abled people. I think that we have a lot to gain from talking about accessibility and using it and writing code for making our apps accessible and i would like to thank you drew for (laughs) sharing your experience and sharing some tips to make apps better for everyone i'd also like to thank you maureen for coming and talking to us about realm and talking to us about accessibility Uh, this has been a good episode and i'm looking forward to the next episode in two weeks episode five where we're going to talk about server-side swift with vapor and that'll do it for us this week back to you ray And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the RayWendel.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.
1: Okay.